I'm glad to get back to Exodus with you with all of our uh, storms and uh, Dad surprising me on Labor Day weekend and all of that. <laughs> That's been a while since we've been able to uh, enjoy Exodus. And uh, and we're going to be in Exodus 17 and 18 uh, th- this evening. And as a reminder that we've been looking at the book of Exodus as this picture book of the hope of redemption. That the things that we see in these events regarding Moses and the people of Israel are not just merely a narrative, but there was a picture of what God was going to do for His people when Christ came. And we have seen in the in the past paragraph in Exodus a scene that we know pretty well, where we see Israel complaining because they have no food and they have no water. First, when they had come to some water and they thought they were going to be able to drink and it turned out that it was bitter water there. And so then we see uh, God is able to, to correct that as He works a miracle by putting some wood in the water they're able to drink. No sooner does that happen than we're 30 days out from their time in, in Egypt and they're growing hungry. And so God provides them manna and quail and meat from, from heaven to provide for them so that they would not be hungry anymore. And then if that was not enough, then they run out of water again and rather than learning the lesson from the first time with the water or just recently with the food, we see them them complaining to Moses about not having water. And so then Moses is instructed to be able to strike the rock and water then flows from that rock. And so that's the scene where we have left off with these events where God has shown that He is going to take care of His people. He is going to provide for them. He has not rescued them out of Egypt just to let them die in the desert, but He is going to bring them to the promised land. And so with that in mind, let's notice with some of the things that happen next. And and we might read some of these things in chapter 17 and 18 and think, well, why is this really here? There's some curious narratives that, that occur here. But God is showing something about His character as He reveals this to us. Exodus chapter 17 and notice verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Let's just stop there because that's all it tells us about what has just happened here at this moment. We're going to see this battle engaged, but it's important to know what Amalek has just done to Israel because it almost sounds like in reading this that, well, they just happened to come into Amalek's territory and we're going to have this fight that's about to happen. But Deuteronomy reveals to us otherwise. In Deuteronomy 25, in verse 17, we read there, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And you hear what Deuteronomy is saying is happening right here. You can imagine this large group of people, and we've seen them there moving through the desert. It's been more than a month as they've been out there, and they were working our way to come to Mount Sinai. And as they're moving along the way, Amalek sees this as an opportunity to attack. And notice the phrase, cut off the tail. They come and get the back end of this mass of Israelites, figuring these are the weak and the faint and the helpless. We will strike them and get the weaklings who are at the back of the pack and engage in them. It's an ambush. So with that in mind, then look at verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua... 
Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. I want you to just underline what Moses is saying here for us. So here is this unprovoked attack. Here is this ambush that happens of them. And Moses says to Joshua, who is one of their military leaders, I want you to gather some men and we're going to fight. And we are going to deal with the people of Amalek and deal with what they've done. But notice what Moses says he's going to do. Moses doesn't tell Joshua, you know, get your best fighting men and, and we make sure they're strong and make sure they're mighty and all that. He just says, I want you to go get some guys. And after you go get some guys, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand on top of the hill and I'm going to stand up there with the staff of God in my hand. Now, that's a curious military strategy, right? Here's Moses going, well, here's what I'm going to do in all this. I'm going to stand on the hill with the staff. We're like, uh, all right, great plan. But notice what Moses is emphasizing and what he is doing. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand on this hill and I'm going to have the staff of God in my hand. The staff of God has played a major role in the book of Exodus so far. Remember, this was the staff that God had given to Moses and said, take that staff and use it. And you're going to use that staff to perform signs so that the people will be let go out of Egypt's hand. That would be the thing that he is going to use. We see that it is the very staff that is thrown down before the magicians that turns into a serpent and then is picked back up, back into a staff again. Remember, Remember when we see the first plague that is Moses taking the staff and using it to be able to turn the Nile into blood. It's the staff that he waves so that the frogs will come up into Egypt and cover the place with gnats as well. It's the staff that he used when he brought thunder and hail and fire to the earth and he brought locusts over the land. Every time these plagues are noted, you'll notice it will say that Moses had the staff of God when he did it. And then when we are backed up against the Red Sea, remember what God tells Moses, but to take that staff again and to wave that over the sea and the sea would part so that the people could come in on dry land. And finally, remember what we just saw in chapter 17 is that when the people are complaining about the the water situation, we have no water to drink. God tells Moses, take that staff and strike that rock and water's going to pour forth. This staff is no ordinary staff. And for Moses to be able to go up on the mountain and say, I'm going to go on the hill and I'm going to have the staff of God. That would be every indication of victory. Because it's been the staff of God that we've seen Moses perform miracles, bring about the plagues, deliver the Israelites out of Egypt by crossing the Red Sea and bring water from a rock. This is not just Moses saying, you know, I'm going to hang up on a hill while you guys, you know, battle this out. But this is a picture of God is going to give us the victory. God is going to give us deliverance. He's going to protect and he's going to provide for us at this moment. So notice then verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. 
So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying a hand upon the Lord of the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Really great scene that happens here. And so Moses then goes up on the mountain and we see Aaron and Hur go up on this mountain, this hill as well. And the picture is fascinating. As Moses is able to hold the staff above his head in the air, Israel is prevailing in the battle against Amalek. But as soon as his arms lower, that's when now Amalek begins to prevail and Israel begins to lose. I think we can appreciate your arms being tired, holding something over your head all day long. Have you ever done some kind of activity that requires something over your head and it takes about maybe four to five minutes and you're already like, good grief, my arms are killing. I think of Christmas lights every year and going like this and my arms are dying as I have my hands over my head and you finally go, man, well, here is Moses and he's bringing his arms down to rest. But every time he puts his arms down, Amalek starts winning the battle. And so they put a stone under Moses and he sits down and they just hold his hands there in the air. And in doing so, it brings the victory to Israel. Now, you may have heard some really unusual explanations about what was happening here. I know I remember hearing some strange ones growing up in Bible, kids Bible classes. And I read some strange ones from the commentators as Well, one of the the more famous pictures of what is going on here is they'll say, well, what happened was is that the people were becoming more courageous during the battle when they would see the staff of God raised over Moses' head. And so they would see that and they'd get all the more zealous and all the more courageous and they would go to the fight and they'd be able to win. And when they saw his arms drop, they kind of got discouraged and they were really upset about that. They kind of started losing the battle. But when they saw Moses with the staff over his head, that's when they would fight really hard. And that's all fascinating, so the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything to that degree at all, that that's the reasoning behind this. And I think it's important to consider, would that be really the message that God is trying to communicate here at this moment, is that the power of the battle is in your hands? I don't think so. The other popular answer is to say, well, the the posture of hands being raised in the air is a common posture of prayer. And so while Moses has his hands in the ear of the staff, he's praying to God. And therefore, God is giving the victory because Moses is able to continue in prayer. But when his arms go down, he ceases in prayer. And so then there's this great sermon about how we all need to pray a lot. And I got to read a lot of those. And it doesn't say that either, that that's the intent behind what's happening here is that the whole picture is Moses needed to pray through this. And once Moses then was unable to do that, then that's when they would lose. I think there's a very simple message that God is communicating through this event and why this was happening the way that it was. The picture is simply this. The battle had nothing to do 
with the ability or the might or the courage or the strength of Israel, but had everything to do with God who was going to give the victory. And to realize that it was God who was doing this. And the staff of God raised is showing here is the power of God and why you are winning. And without God, you are not going to win this battle, which Israel seemed to not understand many, many times in their history. But God is communicating that right here. You need me to win the battle. The reason you are winning is because God is with you. And that's what's already here's the first scene. We've barely come out of Egypt and we have our first attack. The Amalekites come and ambush them and hit the weakly weak in the faith in the back of the pack. And immediately before we are going to deal with any future battles that's going to happen as they try to come into the promised land, I want you to know one primary key message. The reason you have victory is because God gives it to you. Because God's with you. And if God is with you, you will win. But if God is not with you, you will lose. And I think that's such an important picture that Israel needs to learn about God right away. When God is with you, you will be victorious. But when God is not with you, you will not. And I think it's interesting what God promises here in the midst of this as God gives Israel the victory. You'll notice in, in verse 14 it says there that He would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. How many Amalekites do you know? No, we don't. That's God accomplishes exactly what He says. that They were going to be utterly wiped out and completely destroyed. And later on we'd see that very thing happen. Which this goes to a thread that we have seen So many times, and I want you to see it again, and I hope it'll be something that you would just kind of include in your faith and remind yourself of again and again, because God teaches this to Israel over and over again. It's a message to us in the New Testament. It is glaring in the book of Revelation. Your enemies are God's enemies. It's always the picture God wants to show. Amalek attacked my people. I will attack them. I will deal with your enemies. I will deal with the ones who afflict you. I will take care of them. And friends, that is one of the key messages of the book of Revelation. Saints under the altar crying out about the persecution, the suffering they're going through. God is going to deal with it. God is going to be victorious. That your enemies are God's enemies. He fights for His people. And this is the message that he communicates here is that God has come to their rescue, that God is going to save them. Now, chapter 18 seems like a radical shift from this. Because here we are in the wilderness and we've got the water and the the lack of food and the water again. And now we're being attacked and we're seeing all this about God. And chapter 18 brings us into an interesting scene and provides us some information about things that have happened in the past regarding Moses and the Exodus and the deliverance that we didn't know by reading Exodus up to this point. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, Heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
And the name of the other Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two, her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other the well, their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because of this affair they dealt arrogantly in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the peoples and Jethro Moses father-in-law brought a burnt offering sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses father-in-law before God really neat scene that happens here is one of the things that we didn't realize in all this is perhaps you've asked the question where's Moses' wife and kids in all this? They didn't go back to Egypt. They had stayed behind with Jethro in Midian. And so now that Moses has set the people free and they've come through the desert and we're told that now they've come to Mount Sinai at this moment, that Jethro then brings a Moses' wife and Moses' two children. There's this great family reunion that finally happens. But the big effect of the scene is simply this is that Moses tells Jethro, let me tell you everything that happened. You will not believe what God has done. Notice some of the descriptions that is given there. It says there in verse 8, in telling Moses' father-in-law all that had been done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships had to come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And then notice verse 9, Jethro rejoicing for all the good the Lord had done to Israel. Can you imagine what this scene sounds like? Moses sitting down with Jethro and going, okay, first you won't believe what happened. The water turned to blood. And it was amazing. And then there was frogs. And just, and you just imagine all the things he's just describing, the victory that God had given each of the way. And then we go the wrong way out of Egypt. We don't go the shortcut. I mean, everybody's telling you're going the wrong way. Here we are backed up against the Red Sea. And God tells me to take the staff of God, wave it over the waters, and it parts. And we walked on dry land to the other side. And then all the Egyptians came in behind me and they were going to get us. And God wiped them out in the sea. I mean, he's just telling them the whole story. And notice what it does. Verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, now the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Remember, this was supposed to be the effect of the Exodus. One of the things that we have seen in our study of the book is that 
Pharaoh asked quite boldly and arrogantly and not informatively, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And God has made it clear, oh, I'm going to show Pharaoh who is the Lord that he should obey. And I'm going to show the Egyptians that. And I'm going to show Israel that. And I'm going to show the world that. Everyone's going to know about who this God is in this great Exodus redemption. And notice, that's exactly what happens here. And who is it that is praising God and saying, now I know there are no other gods but the true God. Underline it, it's a Gentile. A Gentile is already comprehending the power of God because of a redemption act that has been done in Egypt. Here is God already picturing what God's purpose is going to be. That He is going to do this great act of redemption that would cause not only the people of Israel, but also the world and the outsiders to come to know who God is. And to make this very declaration, there is no other God but God alone. Friends, that is certainly the message of the cross. It's exactly what God is accomplishing. Is that our mission as salt and light is to tell other people about the glories of God, proclaiming His excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light so that the world will proclaim the glories of God as well and say the very same words, there are no other gods but God alone. That's what God's doing here. Is already laying out this grand picture book of redemption and saying, this is the goal of what God has done. Is that He would do a great act that the all, all the world would see. So that they would come to understand that all the world needs to bow the knee before God. That the Lord God is the true God above all other supposed deities. And that even through the Exodus, the Gentiles are going to be worshipers of the true and living God. One other curious thing happens. Verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. I want to stop and think about that for a minute. We know when we number the people to go to war, when they are going to come up against the land of Canaan, that there are 603,550 men of war and that meant you were 20 years old and up as a male from every tribe except Levi so if you did a general estimate and figured let's add in all the tribe of Levi that didn't get counted and add in that probably the majority of them are married and have some have kids and don't have kids and all the different states you'd be in you have well over a million people easily We have 603,550 fighting men. We have well over a million. So read that carefully when it says, the people come to him morning to evening in verse 13 so that he can be judge over them and decide the cases and solve all the disputes and all the problems. Here he is acting as a sole authority over a million people. You think that would be exhausting and it would take a long time? 
to listen to everybody's problems and you would be the one to sort all that out. This isn't five people having a problem. The whole nation comes to him. Verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of the Lord. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know to make them know the statutes of God and his laws. It makes perfect sense, right? They come to me and well know God's law and how to understand it and weigh between and so I do it. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chief of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you you that any small matter they decide themselves so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you if you do this god will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace and so moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said so here you have moses doing this work deciding cases dispute between the massive population of the israelites And I love Jethro goes, you can't do that. What you are doing is not good. This isn't going to work. And I want you to recognize the basis by which he says, he says, Moses, you need to be teaching the people and telling them God's laws. Verse 20, warn them about the statutes and the laws. Make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. You teach them the law of God. But when it comes to these disputes and issues, select some men who can deal with those matters and they can bring the the, the heavy cases to you, but let them deal with the smaller things and God will be with you when you do that. It is fascinating to me that that is a model that God has used repeatedly throughout the history of his people. You can roll forward even to the days of Jesus who then selects 12 disciples who are going to go before him and do the work. Jesus is saying, okay, i got one guy. You know, It's going to be Peter, Peter alone. He's going to do it all by himself. It, it, no, we're going to get a bunch of men who are going to do the task to do that. And then once we even see that, you might think quickly of Acts chapter 6, right? Where here we have this problem where the, the Grecian widows are being neglected from the daily distribution, and the apostles recognize this principle. It's not good for us to leave the word of God in prayer to be able to take care of these things because there are others who can be qualified to do it. And so they say, select seven men who are of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, lays out the qualifications. Let them take care of those things so that the apostles would be freed to continue to do the work before them. It is, I think, the reason why we see churches are supposed to have shepherds and deacons. 
is the same very concept. It's not supposed to be one person doing it all. It's not even supposed to be like two people doing it all. And so often we can fall into that kind of mentality. I I see that a lot. Well, we hire the preacher to do all the work. (laughs) No, you don't. That's very contrary to the very thing the Scriptures teach. And I believe one of the reasons why preachers like to do that is because then they get all the attention and all the power and they can make all the decisions. And that's wrong. They're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be one of many. That's why there's supposed to be elders. There's supposed to be many people. That's the way God has set it up. What we are seeing is the wisdom of God displayed in having a multiplicity of elders, not one elder, and the preacher being under subjection to that that group of elders and working together in that because it's not supposed to all fall on one individual. And I would highlight even more that you're also getting a sense of there are things that are set for other people to do and what frees the elders to do other activities and other works and if freeing the evangelists to do other activities and other works is the reason why there are deacons so be able to delegate you guys do these things and we will do these things it's a very important reminder that's being given here about what God has accomplished in His wisdom to say we are going to set a particular structure this way, not because we just get to decide how to do that, but that is the mind of God to understand us the way it's supposed to be. And we understand then that we have elders who are here to work for us and lead us and guide us in spiritual ways, and they aren't here to be able to fix refrigerators and do you know things like that. They have a much more important task that lays ahead of them of a work that they must do in feeding the flock in the direction they must go and recognize the, the gravity of what's placed upon their shoulders and we respect them and say, we want you to do that because that's the work that's given to you to do. And these other things, we will take care of these other things. We will select others who can do other tasks so that these things can be freed for you to do the work that you need to do. This is exactly what Jethro is telling Moses. Moses. You're able to go before God. You don't need to be settling disputes of these two people who are whining over who knows what. Set some people over who can take care of those things. You have a very important role of teaching the people and instructing them in the ways of God to recognize the role that had been given to them. It is amazing how God has done that and given us that role and given us that task. I think it is very important that we always maintain that. We recognize the roles that have been given, like we read in Ephesians chapter 4, that the giving of some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and and, uh, shepherds and teachers. All of these have different roles and different functions. And notice all of them, though, for the equipping of the saints to be able to do every good work. And that was the picture that I think is so beautiful in what we see Jethro here telling Moses and what he needs to do. It's the wisdom of God. Now, Why would all that be put together? Because it seems like three completely independent ideas, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's okay. Uh, We got attacked by Amalek, and we've got Moses with hands in the air and the staff of God. We've got Jethro praising God for the victory that was given to Israel. And then we've got what seems to be some administrative things going on here of Moses. You can't do it all yourself. You need to select some men who are of good reputation and who are wise who can do these things. One of the things that I think we're seeing in chapter 16, chapter 17, and chapter 18 is this consistent thread that God 
provides for the needs of his people. And it doesn't matter what arena we're talking about. If they needed to be set free from slavery, God's there to provide. If they need water in the desert, God's there to provide. If they need food on the journey, God is there to provide. If they get attacked by an outsider, God is there to provide. In all of these aspects, you are getting this picture again and again. God is going to provide. He is going to bring glory to His name through His people so that here's Gentiles like Jethro who are going to praise God and God is going to provide for that as well to accomplish such a great redemption that the world would be able to praise Him and to be able to even provide for the needs of His people When it even comes to a picture like this, that it wouldn't just be Moses alone, that you just do all the work and you figure it out and we'll just be this heavy burden on you, Moses, but that even God in his wisdom has set up a plan for that. It is a beautiful scene of here is God first providing for the physical needs of Israel and now God is providing for the rest of the people's needs. And so here is this great scene of of what God is able to do for his people. He fights for his people. He provides for his people. He gives victory for his people. And I think it's so important to just underline that this is what God is trying to get us to understand. That we can trust in God because he will care for us. He has wisdom in all of these arenas. And whatever our particular need is, we are called upon to trust in the wisdom, in the strength, and in the might of God. And I just want us to consider how that is amplified all the more when you bring that idea forward to the New Testament and what we see that was accomplished for us through Christ. God has supplied for us our greatest need, making us more than conquerors, victors, Because of what God has accomplished in Christ. We have hope because we have a new Moses who is Jesus, who has displayed his mighty power and has through his death and his resurrection conquered our greatest enemy. The greatest enemy that stood against us, Satan, sin, death, the thing that had condemned us the most and doomed us to eternity and punishment. Jesus has crushed Satan under his feet and through him we are able to also be victorious. Romans 16.20, crushing Satan under our feet as well. We are given these pictures that we have victory in Christ, that God is with us, that he supplies our needs, that he cares for us. And that is probably the biggest calls that you get from Philippians. Here's Philippians 4 verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We often lift that out of context and go, well, I need a Mercedes and I, I, need, um, I need a house. And, I, and, <laughs> and if we step back and just think about what God is picturing about, I've got it. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will give you what you need. And I've shown that by taking care of your greatest need. What God had done in the Exodus was show, I will set you free and take care of your greatest need. I fight your Egyptian enemies and I set you free. So now you are able to trust in God to take care of all the rest because you see what he did back in Egypt. And we do the same thing. 
We look back at the cross. We see what God has done at the cross. And we go, I know I can trust God to take care of whatever I have that lies ahead. Because he's accomplished so much right there. He did not bring us out of slavery from sin and death so that we would die in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. He is bringing us to eternity. And he is with us every step of the way. That whatever our need is, that we need to trust him because he will provide for us and take care of us. Let me just end on this final thought. How often in our lives do we think the answer to our problems is usually in some sort of person or some possession? The thing that's going to solve my greatest need is either career or family or friends or parents or children or spouse or geography or whatever it is. That's going to be the thing that's going to take care of it all. And all that God is trying to get us to understand is I have exerted all of this power so that you would just trust me. Because we read these stories and we go, I can't believe they won't trust God. And I wonder what future generations of people could write down what all the things that we did and was preserved and they wouldn't read and go, why didn't you trust God? You have all the same challenges and all the same questions and all the same concerns. Why don't you trust him? Why don't you believe that he cares for every aspect of your life and has proven that by caring for your greatest need, the sin need, that he has dealt with sin. And now there is nothing that causes us to not be able to turn to him. It is the great picture of God being able to tell us that when we pray, I want you to pray in this way. Our Father. It's a staggering relationship. And when you're reminded of that relationship, there's nothing off limits for the child to not be able to come to the parent about. There's nothing that my kids cannot come to me and say, I have this concern, I have this need, I have this issue, I have anything. And God is saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to see that I've taken care of every need. I'm here for you. Come to me. Trust me. I've got you. And I'll provide for you and carry you through. The book of Exodus is a great reminder then of the great things that we have in Christ and why we need to trust in God to carry us the rest of the way home, to not trust in the things of this world, to not trust in friends, family, possessions, and all these other things, but to see that God provides whatever His people need. Our enemies are God's enemies. He deals with the enemies and brings us home. We're going to sing a song now, and we invite you then to...